So I wish you a good morning, too, in Jesus' name. I had the privilege of uh, living in Eastern Europe for about 24 years, and um, I met a lot of people who were brought up being taught that all religion is mythology and that um, it's, um, <clears throat> it's an ideology for old women and stupid people and superstitious people. And one way they perpetuated the, the narrative that it's for not very bright people is because they wouldn't let believers go to university. <laughs> and they wouldn't let them have teaching jobs. So um, when those captive peoples became free and when they had the opportunity to to hear the truth, um, a lot of very, very bright people um, realize that there's one God who made heaven and earth and that Jesus of Nazareth is his son. And um, I have to tell you that I worked mainly in um, Hungary, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and uh, a couple of times early in the Soviet Union, and then I moved to Russia after it was free. But I've never been to Bulgaria. But um, <clears throat> Campus Crusade headquarters were in Budapest, where I lived for 13 years, and they would bring their, their top staff members from each country for a year of training in something they called BUILD, Budapest International Leadership Development. And um, so I had the privilege in the year 2009 and 2010 to have a Bulgarian family in my church. And um, his name is Tancho Tonchev. If you can just remember Tancho, you'll be doing well. So um, he was coming through Memphis, and he happened to be in Memphis today. So I thought it would be much more interesting to hear a few minutes from him than to hear many, many minutes from me. So he's going to tell you a little bit of his story. He is. Uh, He's actually been a missionary in Russia from Bulgaria for five years. And um, now he's a missionary in Budapest from Bulgaria. And he's actually been in Christian ministry for 20 years. So for most of us in this room, the Iron Curtain and the Soviet bloc was like a permanent fixture. And it's astounding to realize that it's been gone for 34 years. Isn't that amazing? We're going really fast toward heaven, man. So let's be ready. Anyway, this is my friend Tancho. He's going to share for a minute. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. And I don't know, do you ever find yourself laying in bed and thinking, what is after this world? Where is the end of the world? Did you? It was me many, many years ago when I was still a student and still don't know what to do with my wife. My life, not my wife. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Later. So I was grow up, uh, I grew up in a communistic background. My father was part of the youth communistic party leader. And our, for our families, it was forbidden to go to church. Here sometime when I kid, during Easter, I have a desire, hey, mom, let's go to church and see what's going on there. The church was for old people. If you're ready to die, you go to church. 
If you're young, you don't care. And you really don't need to do anything about it. So this was my childhood. My grandma was an Orthodox believer, and she every time uh, talked about church, but we are, we are not understanding anything of this. Anyway, so when I was a student, uh, I met some missionaries, and actually my questions that I just shared a minute ago, getting popping more and more. What is after this world? What's happened when I die? And I try to understand. But in the morning when I wake up, it's a new day, new sun, I forgot about my dreams and my thinking during the night, and I continue with my life. So meeting missionaries, they start talking about God. And I, it took me a while to understand the gospel, but every time I said, I'm a good boy, I have my moral standards, I don't want to do anything with God. I appreciate your religion, what, what you believe, but I don't want to have anything with it. So it was about four years for me uh, to change my mindset and really to understand what God has for me. I went to the army because it was mandatory to be in the army after finish university. And this was the first time uh, a friend of mine, the same friend that shared the gospel with me, sent me a New Testament. And this was the first time I really sit down and start reading with the understanding what the gospel is. And I was intrigued because I would like to be sure how this thing that is written 200 years, not 75 million years, 200 years uh, ago, it's really reality. So I start asking questions. And I, I have, uh, I'm an engineer in my profession, and may, many, many of you maybe know, engineers want to know one plus one making two. So I want to be sure that what I'm reading is really true. And it took me another maybe six months to talk with this person. He discipled me very gently and quietly and patiently, uh, answered all my questions. And at some point, I do real, uh, realize and understand, okay, there is God, and God is real. And I trust my, Christ, my, my life to, to Christ. And back in this moment, uh, I was not aware of the, how much hunger people in my country, Bulgaria, are. I started going with uh, Jesus Film campaigns around the country. What we were doing was just to set up a simple campaign in a city and uh, make a big advertisement, uh, make a film showing, and I was, <coughs> excuse me, I was amazed to see how many young people coming to these movie theaters wanted to see Jesus film. And people cry on a place, people raise their hands, they become trust Christ. I was blown out because this is what not I was teach when I was young. The church was for the old people. Nobody cared about the gospel. And this really changed my perspective and my uh, understanding of Christianity of God. And this was the first time that my heart was uh, inspired with the desire to, to be active and spread the gospel uh, as much as I'm possible. So short, short, uh, long story short, a uh, few years later, I started a job. Uh, and God's continue working in my heart because I'm thinking I'll be a very successful Christian in my workplace. And I'm going to share gospel, gospel around the people. And I'm just going to be successful. It's not happened. I started working, uh, I was really occupied with my work, and I shared the gospel, but not that actively that I would like to. So after that, uh, God in a very, uh, very unique way told me, you got to go back and become a missionary. And I did. So this was back in uh, 2001. I was missionary with Campus Crusade in Bulgaria for 10 years. 
And again, at some point, we were praying with my wife uh, about our next mission assignment. And we, I do probably, you heard about the, uh, the prayer of Jabez. I believe it's the right English. So it said, expand my territories. And we pray this prayer either without understanding what we are doing. But God expanded our territory, and he moved us from Bulgaria, which was a small, a small country with 8 million people. Uh, God opened our territory to Russia, which is nine time zones and 140 million people. And we moved to Russia to serve with uh, campus ministry in Russia. And it was a huge blessing. And either back then, we continue praying this prayer in our hearts. God expand our territory. Use us for your gospel. And after, uh, after that, God granted this request again. So we were, we were moved to, uh, to serve in, our, uh, in the, the entire European, I mean, Eastern European country. So God continue to uh, give us more opportunity to share the gospel and to uh, serve him. And yeah, this is my, my story. And right now, I can, looking back, I can see this unbelieving student sitting in my bed and thinking, what is, how, what is the end of the universe? Right now I know there is no end because I'm with God. So thank you for giving me opportunity to share this story uh, this morning with you. Uh, it's for God, God, God's glory, not for anything else. Thank you. I hope many of you will uh, grab a prayer card from Tancho and keep up with him. You know... Most of you have seen those Viking uh, river cruise commercials on television. About four of those beautiful vistas that they show you are Budapest. So you might get to Budapest one day, and, you know, I gave him a free place to stay here. Maybe he'll give you a place to stay there. So <laughs> this is one reason we keep up with, with people that we meet. So, uh, Okay, so what I want to do in the time we have is to... Um, take a fast flight over Matthew 11. And um, I'm going to touch on some themes that just beg for elaboration and a lot of time, but we're, we're, we're not going to give it a lot of time because we don't have a lot of time. But I, I just like for us to get a taste of what's here and what it means. And then you have the rest of your lives to take a deep dive into God's Word in this great chapter. And um, I, I'm not going to read a long passage. I'm just going to hit the high points and tell you what's happening as it goes along. This is the passage uh, that begins in verse 2 with John the Baptist in prison. And from prison, he sends his disciples, Lord, may your Holy Spirit teach May he illumine what he has caused to be written. These men don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And I pray that they would hear from you. Is They've gotten up early and they've opened their Bibles this morning. Reward them with a deeper knowledge of yourself and a deeper love for yourself. For we ask it in Christ's own name. Amen. So the John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask the Lord Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Now, this is an overwhelming indirect proof that the Bible is true. 
Because when we hear from the skeptics, they say that these accounts were contrived, that they were made up. One thing I've mentioned almost everything I've come down here to, to meet with you is that if it had been made up, it would have been made up in a different way. Now, can you imagine for a moment how this weakens Christian truth claims that the forerunner, the prophesied forerunner and the Messiah is doubting whether Jesus is really the one or not. It's amazing when you read the commentaries, uh, frequently you will see a statement like, well, he really wasn't doubting. He was doubting. And the reason he was doubting was because he did not factor in the possibility that he might suffer, that he might suffer supremely. And I think some of us have this, this sort of naive expectation, well, when we become a Christian, that means everything's going to be great. Well, let me tell you something. Unless we're alive when Jesus comes, we're all going to die. Some of us are going to die slowly. Some of us are going to die painfully. And you know what? If we don't die, we're going to watch everybody else die. There are two houses mentioned at the end of the Sermon on the Mount with two different foundations. Those two houses have different foundations, but they have the same storm. The same storm beats on both houses. One falls and one stands. So the difference between your life as a believer and the, un and the unbeliever's life is not that nothing hard ever happens to you. It's the fact that you have a foundation built on a rock, and your house doesn't collapse because it's built on, it's built on a rock. And... I mean, John the Baptist thinks, okay, so he's the Messiah. I'm the forerunner. If he's the Messiah, what am I doing in prison? This isn't what we expected. And almost everything Jesus said and did was counterintuitive, even counterintuitive to the human. By counterintuitive, I mean he does the opposite of what we would expect. But he was specially counterintuitive to the messianic expectations. This is why, this is one reason we know the thing was not made up. And again, if it were made up, why on earth would Matthew include a report of John the Baptist's doubt? That doesn't strengthen the claim. That gives fodder to the enemies of the Lord and saying, well, obviously, obviously he's not the one. And by the way, if it were made up, can you imagine giving the assignment of uh, writing the gospel to the Jews to Matthew, the Jews hated the Gentiles, but they hated the Samaritans worse. But they hated somebody worse than the Samaritans. The Gentiles couldn't help it that they were Gentiles. We're mostly Gentiles in here. We can't help it that we're Gentiles. We didn't say, hey, I want to be a Gentile. Samaritans couldn't help it that they were Samaritans. But tax collectors, they could help it. They chose to be traitors. They were for money. They were the most loathed in among the first century Jews. So Matthew was a tax collector. It would have been madness if they were contriving a narrative to reel people in based on false claims. Why was Matthew chosen? Because Jesus chose him, that's why. Talk about counterintuitive. Because of his grace toward even tax collectors. It's an amazing thing. You, you see it at the end of that. It happened at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 8, where he calls, uh, Matthew 9, where he, I think it's Matthew 9, 
where he calls Matthew. In Matthew 8, he commends the, the centurion, the Gentile. He says, you know, I've not seen the faith among the Jews that I see, among this, that I see in this Roman occupier. Can you imagine? I mean, that's not a, that's not a, a, a pronouncement guaranteed to win friends and influence people among the Jews. Hey, guess what? This Gentile has more faith in the God of Israel than you Jews do. A horribly unwelcome thing to say. Why did Jesus say it? Because it was true. Because it was true. So let's not be uh, let's not be derailed in our Christian walk because we didn't expect to suffer because we came to know Jesus. I don't think John was ultimately derailed, but he had his doubts and he wanted he wanted a clarification. If I had been Jesus, now that's a horrible, it's almost a <laughs> blasphemous formulation, but I think I would have said, hey, uh, remember the voice from heaven? Remember the Holy Spirit descending like a dove down on my head? How could you possibly ask that question? But you know, he doesn't say that. He, says, he said, you go tell your master uh, what you hear and see that um, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he says, and blessed is the one who's not offended in me. What does that mean? Blessed is the one who uh, doesn't think, well, I wanted him to be someone else. I wanted him to be something else. One of the greatest phenomena on this planet is the phenomenon of atheism. And, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's very difficult for me to be civil and to show good manners to an atheist. Because I want to say, is you're a damned fool. And I don't say that profanely. I say it reverently. I say it theologically. It's exactly what the Bible says in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1. You are a fool, and if you go to your grave denying the existence of God and the salvation that is offered by God through his son, Jesus Christ, you will be damned forever. But the, uh, the stupidity of the uh, hypothesis is staggering. Now, you're not going to believe what I'm about to say. Go home and Google it. You're going to say that's impossible. Go home and Google it. There are 100,000 miles of nerve fiber in your brain. There's a trillion times a trillion synapse connections. More synapse connections in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. You know, my, my wife is a wonderful packer. You know, if I try to repack something, it's like there are four times as many things as were originally in there. And it's like, it's like trying to refill a hole that you dig. Just the, in, just the existence of nerve fiber is impossible without, unless God did it. But can you imagine getting 100,000 miles of anything inside a human skull and packing it just right? And can you imagine how stupid you have to be to say that that happened accidentally? 
Well, the reason is because they don't, they don't want there to be a God. They're offended at the idea of the God who is presented in the Bible. He is either inconvenient to them in terms of what they want to do with their sexuality, their money, their time, their future, or he's offensive to them in terms of the way he has governed the universe, maybe the, the volume of suffering in the universe, or maybe something that they don't like, or maybe something that happens in the Bible that they don't like. And the amazing irony is that they have trouble with the way God judges the world, the omniscient God, but they don't have any trouble judging God. Think of that. Think of the insanity of that. Blessed is the one who's not offended at God, who's not angry at the way God has done things, who's not bitter at what God uh, has allowed. And you see, the problem with these atheists is not that they don't believe in God. They want to be God. They want to make these judgments. They want to govern all of life and everything that happens. And it's a convenient thing for them to say, well, there must not be a God there because there's not a God there that I like. Blessed is the one who's not offended at me. Now, after John's disciples walk away, he begins to brag on John. It's interesting. He doesn't flatter him while he's there. And, and by the way, you know, sometimes Jesus says in the hearing of his disciples, how long am I going to have to put up with y'all? I mean, you know, <laughs> Jesus was human enough to show exasperation at the cluelessness of the men he chose to carry his message forward after he ascended to heaven. But when he talks to the Father about them, you go read the high priestly prayer uh, in John 17. He talks about them like they're some kind of spiritual superstars or something, you know. And, and, and um, so he's a little bit tough in the message he sends to John the Baptist through his disciples. But after the disciples walk away, he begins to talk about John. <clears throat> and he said, what did you expect to see when you found out about who John the Baptist was and what his ministry was like? Did you expect to see a reed shaken in the wind? In other words, did you expect to see someone who was battered and influenced by every change in popular opinion? Uh-uh. That wasn't John the Baptist. <clears throat> Did you expect to see a man dressed really nice? No, this, is, this man is a prophet. He's actually more than a prophet. He's actually the fulfillment of prophecy himself because it was written about him, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he says, this is an amazing thing, but it's the second most amazing thing in the passage. Among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now, you've got to think, wow, is that true? Was Abraham not greater than John the Baptist? Was Noah not greater than John the Baptist? He saved the whole world who would be saved. Was, uh, was Joseph not greater than John the Baptist? Was Daniel not greater than John the Baptist? Was Moses not greater than John the Baptist? It seems like a stretch, doesn't it? Well, it's not as much of a stretch as the next thing he says. He says, but you know what? You and you and you and you and you and you and you, everybody at this table, 
who's saved, everybody at that table is saved, everybody at that table is saved, this table, that table, that table, that table. Um, every one of you are greater than John the Baptist. Now, if you want to have problem believing the Bible, forget Jonah and the fish and, and the parting of the Red Sea and the axe head that floated. That's hard to believe. What does he mean? What on earth is he talking about? Well, he's measuring greatness by our capacity to point to Jesus. And you know, there were aspects in Noah's life which pointed to Jesus. He built an, he built an ark of salvation where the people who would be saved could run into, there's a great Puritan sermon called An Ark for All of God's Noah's, and it's about Jesus. And there were certainly uh, aspects of Abraham's life and Moses' life and David's life, and Joseph especially. I've, we've talked about Joseph on, on uh, Thursday mornings before. One man wrote a book pointing 50 things in Joseph's life that pointed to Jesus. Probably a bit of a stretch on maybe 25 of those, but still, there were, there were a lot. And, but they only, saw, they only showed Jesus in patterns, in, in shapes, in types, like, like a silhouette. You could see the shape, but you really couldn't see the face. A little piece, a little fragment of Jesus. John, and you know, the great question that Isaac asks in Genesis 22, the greatest, uh, maybe the greatest question in the Old Testament, Genesis 22, 8, as they make their way toward Mount Moriah where Isaac is designated for sacrifice. He doesn't know it yet. His father knows it. And as they're walking toward that place of sacrifice, Isaac in verse 8 says, uh, well, Dad, looks like we got almost everything we need here. We got the fire, got the knife, but uh, what about the animal for sacrifice? What about the lamb? Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham gives a beautiful answer. He even gives an answer that God takes as one of his own appellations, one of his own names. Uh, son, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. Uh, and so the Lord is called, you know, the Lord is called Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer, and then also uh, Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. And um, that's a beautiful answer, but it's incomplete. And the complete answer is not in Genesis 22. As a matter of fact, the complete answer is not even in the Old Testament. The complete answer is given in the first chapter of John's Gospel in the New Testament, verses 29 and 36, where John, Isaac asked the question 3,000 years earlier, excuse me, yeah, about 3,000 years earlier. Uh, where's the lamb? John the Baptist answers the question in John 1. There he is, walking down toward the river. There he is, Isaac. There's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so why is John greater than anybody who came before? Because he was able to point out the Lord Jesus Christ in three dimensions. His face, that's what his face looks like. That's the way he walks. That's the way he wears his clothes. This is what the sound of his voice sounds like. Listen to him. 
But you know what? Okay, so, all right. So, but why, why is the least, I love that verse about the least in the kingdom of God. It's the only place in the Bible, well, one of the places where I'm mentioned specifically. Even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, you see, okay, so how are we greater than John the Baptist? Well, because John the Baptist could only tell part of the story. John the Baptist died on the near side of the cross. We were born on the far side of the cross. We can, we can teach and proclaim the truth about Jesus in ways that John the Baptist could not access. We can talk about the five wounds, the shed blood, the atoning death, the empty tomb. We know the apostolic commentary in the epistles and the prophecy and the apocalypse, the last book of the Bible. That's the way greatness is measured by a man's capacity, but also not just capacity. It has to be his willingness to tell the truth, the whole truth about the whole career of Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God. Jesus says, but, uh, and then, this is a little bit mysterious, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. You see, they knew that Elijah, in the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, was going to be, in a sense, a forerunner. But John the Baptist, in verse 1, he says, look, I'm not Elijah. So what does Jesus mean? John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, well, he could, would have been Elijah if you had believed him. What Jesus is saying is this. If you had believed his message, he would have been all that you would hoped Elijah to have been. But you didn't believe his message. So he did not play the role of Elijah in the sense that you were expecting. What shall I liken this generation to? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We mourned for you, but you didn't lament. Then he says, you know, my cousin and I, we're really different in our ministries and the way we do ministry. He's austere and severe. He stays out in the wilderness, doesn't talk to anybody. He waits for people to come to him. I go to parties. I go to receptions. Um, uh, hosted by tax collectors. And you look at John and you say, look at that hermit. He's Obviously, he's got a, some kind of demon. He's sick. He keeps away from society. You look at me and say, look at that man uh, cavorting with tax collectors and immoral people. He couldn't possibly be a, uh, a man of God. He's a glutton and a wine-bibber, and he associates with immoral people. And he says, so, we played the flute for you. I went to your parties. I was convivial. I entered into your social um, activities. But you didn't dance. You didn't dance to that tune. And John the Baptist sounded a warning. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But you didn't mourn. You didn't mourn your spiritual conditions that John uh, warned you about as, as a faithful prophet. There are people who say, well, you know, I don't like the, that kind of ministry. Well, I don't that, like that kind of ministry. Well, I don't like that kind of music. Well, I don't like the way they do things. I don't like this. I don't like well, I didn't get anything out of that. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Don't ever say that about a worship service. Don't ever say I didn't get anything out of that. 
Do you know that you never went to the temple or the tabernacle except to make a sacrifice? You didn't go to the place of worship throughout the whole Old Testament to get anything out of it. You went to give something. You went to leave something there, not to take something away from there. Let's, let's get that straight. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, if it, it has nothing to do with the type of presentation we offer you. Your problem is that you just don't care for God. No matter what kind of prophet he sends to you. It's not a matter of style. The problem is not with the way we do ministry. The problem is in your heart. He goes on. Uh, I, I'm going to skip to the end. And um, he pronounces woes on the, on the um, Galilean cities. There's so much, we could talk a long time about verses 20 to 24 because there's so many, there are metaphysical things here. He talks about the degrees of toleration in hell. Can you believe that? You know, there, there, um, there are degrees. He says in verse 22, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, Phoenician cities, Gentile cities in the day of judgment than for you. That's where Jezebel was from. It'll be more tolerable for people who shared the pagan worship of Jezebel than it will be to you, the place to whom the Messiah was sent, where the Messiah grew up because of your rejection. Just as there are degrees of reward in heaven. I just mentioned it. In, in this passage, in the same chapter, we're told, about, we're, talk, we're told about the least in the kingdom of heaven and the degrees of punishment. So there are gradations of reward in heaven, greatness in heaven, and the gradations of toleration in hell. See, Jesus just offhandedly addresses these huge questions and he, he addresses the great question of contingency. Well, what if God had done it this way? What if God had done it that way? What if, what if Jesus had gone and done the mighty works in Elijah's generation in those Phoenician cities? Jesus said they would have repented. Wow. Wow. And how did he know? You see, Jesus not only knew what had happened, he knew what might have happened. Had the circumstances been different. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. In other words, for those who were intellectually and religiously presumptuous, the people who thought they were wise, in sorting out these matters, the truth has been hidden from them. But to the babes, the naive, the humble, the people who knew, hey, I, I don't understand this. I'm not going to understand this unless God explains it to me. Those are the ones whom you revealed it to. Jesus is thanking God for his sovereignty. And God's sovereign plan <laughs> included the death of his son by slow torture. And Jesus thanks him for that. And he goes on to say, 
Why did, why, did he do, why did God do it that way? Look at verse 26. Because it seemed good to him. Because it was his pleasure. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus says something similar on the night he was betrayed. In, in speaking of Judas, he said, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. That's one of the most amazing things Jesus ever said. And one thing that tells us is that God does not ordain what happens based on what would seem good to someone like Judas. He does it because it seems good to him. These are, these, these are mind-blowing categories. And then he says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. <laughs> no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows who God is. No one knows who God is really like except for Jesus. And if we don't accept his testimony, then we don't know what God is like. What claims? Now, a man who made claims like that... claims to be humble by the end of the chapter. You know, do y'all remember Dizzy Dean? Anybody remember Dizzy Dean? Uh, trying to think how many 30 game winners there have been since Dizzy Dean. Denny McLean did it once. Maybe it's been done twice, but you used to say before Denny McLean, he was the last 30 game winner. He was from Arkansas. Very colorful. Uh, not the best at English grammar. But he was accused of being boastful. And his response to that was, if you'd done it, it ain't bragging. In other words, if you tell it, you're just telling somebody what you did. That's not bragging. It may seem impressive. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't have brought it up, but it's not like you're telling a lie. How could he say this? The invitation, come to me. Everybody who's struggling, everybody who feels burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart means humble. How could he say, after making these claims about himself, that he's humble? How can you say nobody knows who God except for, I, except for me? Nobody's going to get to God. God and learn anything about God except through me. And I'm humble. How could both those things be true? It's true because he allowed what he claimed to be rejected. He humbled himself to come to a place where what he claimed was repudiated and he was killed for making the claim. And he didn't die quick, he died slowly after being spit upon and mocked. And these two realities abide in the same person in a way that would be impossible for anybody else but the Son of God. You know, Jonathan Edwards may be the greatest man who ever stood in an American pulpit, only it wasn't America when he stood. It was a colony. Um, he used to talk about, I'm going to translate this for you. The pleasing conjunction 
of diverse excellences. All right, what does that mean? The pleasing, something that's really pleasant, it's beautiful, it, it gives us pleasure. Conjunction, the joining. The, the pleasant joining up of diverse, different excellences. What's he saying? The combination of unlike things in a way that's very pleasing and satisfying. He was preaching on Revelation 5, and he was talking about the appearance of Christ there as a lion and a lamb. Now, there's excellence in a lamb. There are excellent qualities, gentleness, trustingness, passivity, non-resistance. And there, there's excellence in a lion, majesty, strength, courage. But they are diverse excellences. They're completely different. We don't think of them together. And if we tried to put the qualities of a lion and a lamb together, it would be something grotesque. But when you see the way God has done it in the man Christ Jesus, it's pleasing. It's, it's a pleasing joining of the qualities of a lion and a lamb. And you see the same thing at the end of Matthew 11. You see someone who has made the, the most supreme claims that anyone would make, the highest claims, and yet he says, I'm, I'm lowly. I'm a a lowly of heart. Well, those seem like opposite claims which could never coexist in the same personality. But they do. And it's beautiful. Because it's Jesus. Amen.